welcome to the Meeple in a Game Stack podcast, a podcast all about board games, whether it's getting into them, getting the most out of them, or just having a good time. This is podcast number 15, and as always, I am your host, Mitch Brown. And this is a very special podcast, the culmination, the final episode of my 2020 Top 30 Games list, detailing the games that I think are the best existing board games that you can play right now. If you want a description of how I ranked this list, as well as what went into consideration for this list, please check out uh, the last two episodes before this. I kind of go over the ranking system in the first podcast, so I would advise checking that out first. But now we come to the top ten, the final list, the best of the best, the glowing exemplars of board gaming, in my opinion, and some of the best experiences that you can have in board games right now, in 2020. Without further ado, let's get into it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's hard not to feel a sense of gravitas at this grand statement of the best of the best that I'm making, but of course, this is absolutely my opinion. If you really disagree, please feel free to let me know on Twitter or at meepleinagamestack at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing your discussions or debates or disagreements on this, as well as hearing maybe your agreements. If you really think these games are the same, or just as good as I think they are, or as much fun as I think they are, please let me know and shout out. Alright, without any more preamble, here is number 10 on my top games list. And this is Clank, a deck-building adventure designed by Paul Denon and published by Renegade Game Studios. So what Clank is, you are competing adventurers, competing thieves, who are delving into a dungeon and trying to emerge with the most loot. However, in this dungeon there are traps, there are enemies, and there is a great sleeping dragon within, all of which you have to avoid, scoop up as much as you can, and get out alive, more importantly, to win this contest between you and your fellows. How you will do this is through a deck-building mechanic. In your deck, at the very beginning, you will be a clumsy and inept adventurer, but as you go, each turn you will have the option to buy from a communal pool and add more cards and more abilities and more items into your deck, which on further turns lets you do more, go farther, overcome obstacles, and scoop up as much loot as you can. However, that is not all. You also have to navigate a maze-like ruin and try to find the most efficient path around while scooping up the best loot that you possibly can, while also doing this before any of your compatriots, or competitors in this case. All the while, you have to avoid making the titular clanking sounds and clumsy fumblings that will give you a chance of having the dragon attack you and ending your adventuring career within its dungeon. How this works is if you make clank, or yeah, generate clank, or noise, you generate cubes that go in a communal pool, and once a triggering event happens, all of these are thrown into a bag, and three are pulled out. Whichever ones are pulled out are then that much damage that the dragon has awoken and done to whoever whoever's cubes have been drawn. At the start of the game, you'll have a bunch of freebie cubes, so at the very beginning, the dragon is, you know, sleepy and doesn't really mind... But as you guys delve further and grab more stuff, 
the dragon gets more and more angry. So even though this is navigating this thing, you also have a push your luck mechanic. Do you try to go the very deepest, grab as much as humanly possible, try to stagger your way back up to the entrance? Or do you just want to go quick, grab something, and then immediately try to make as much noise as you can to try to get the dragon to eat everyone else? It's a wonderful balancing act between the players, their decks, and this dragon. The randomness, the random attacks of this dragon. And for me, this game is excellent. This is a really, really creative and interesting way to use the deck building mechanic. The gameplay is punchy and fun, as well as that sense of progression that deck builders do so well, where you start as a bumbling burglar and you end as a master thief. Your deck will get better, you will be able to do more things, and as you go, you'll get better and better in a really satisfying way. While also trying to push your luck on this random draw mechanic. All of this comes together in a really satisfying and entertaining game that I think is underappreciated for what it is. I really think this game is excellent and better than a lot of people give it credit for. I think it's been around now, and I'm certainly kind of a latecomer to it. It's been out for a few years, but I think people really don't appreciate it quite as much as it deserves. And yeah, for me, it's a really tremendous game and a really great fun that almost is great for teaching games to new people. It's really a super approachable theme and as well as getting some really, you know, the building, the essential vitamins of board gaming. That is push your luck and deck building and all these mechanics mix into it that are really teachable and digestible by new players in a way that is also really, really fun and still super entertaining for people who do know board games. I really think this is an excellent game and one that should be in everybody's collection. And that is number 10, Clank. The next game on this list needs no introduction. It is a colossal titan in the board gaming industry and one that, while I think deserves a place on the top 10 spot, certainly not number one as many people would, and that is Gloomhaven. The sprawling, colossal, adventure, campaign, dungeon-delving experience that is Gloomhaven. How it works is the actual gameplay is broken into scenarios. Each scenario you will have your character, which has its own deck of abilities that it can use. The deck also functions as its health and stamina. As you go and play cards and use the effects on your cards, you will slowly dwindle your deck down until you run out of either health or stamina, and you have to achieve whatever goal of this mission before that happens. However, also cleverly, initiative, unlike most tabletop role-playing games, is random each turn, depending on what you're doing, and on the cards is your initiative, so you can't explicitly communicate, but you have to coordinate with your teammates while also trying to do your objectives before the enemy can. If you can go first, great. Also on the cards, and a clever twist is that on each card are two abilities, a top and a bottom, and you actually have to play two cards each turn, matching up a top and a bottom of two different cards. What this does is give a wonderful bit of tension between a card, and it might have an awesome, terrific ability that you need right now on the top, while also having an essential ability that you need on the bottom, and really making each turn is kind of a dilemma. You have to choose what you're going to do. As well, this kind of dwindling health stamina mechanic while you all navigate this, this dungeon gives a very kind of natural arc to the play of each scenario. You have 
you know, the beginning where you're bursting and full of energy and then slowly your resources and energy will dwindle until your last few turns will be tough choices every time. It's very well balanced in that each scenario will be hard, or at least challenging. And of course, there's an endless amount of replayability because, or at least the endlessly different experience because each of these characters that you select will play different. Each has a different playing style. All the cards and their abilities do different things. Meanwhile, is the rest of the campaign of this. So it's not just scenarios, it's scenarios chosen off of a story. So you'll at the beginning you'll maybe have a couple, and you'll be led through the first few as kind of an introduction linearly. However, it soon becomes to branch, and you'll have to make decisions in the story that lead you to these scenarios. And then the results of those scenarios will lead you to more decisions as you play through this really interesting adventure throughout the town of Gloomhaven. The story element of this is really satisfying. The game as an experience is the closest to a tabletop role-playing game as can be achieved within a board game. It's something that's going to take many, many, many hours. However, it is not quite as many hours as a tabletop role-playing game. It's definitely the synthesis of some of the, like, I would call the best parts of tabletop role-playing games. All tied in this campaign in which you'll grow your character, you'll level up, you'll add more abilities to these decks, you'll add more items as you go. You can discover things and buy things and unlock scenarios for more risk and more reward. You can, as well as there's the character retiring mechanic where you'll play as one character and you'll level them up a few times, but each character has a side objective. And once you achieve that, it benefits that it benefits the team as a whole but that character will want to retire and you'll start a new one. I really, really enjoy this. As someone who enjoys checking out different systems and discovering new things, this is awesome. This is great so that you don't play a huge slogging campaign as one character. You get the variety that comes with different ones. You, of course, have the option when you start a new character, once you retire one, you get to pick a new one. And usually once you retire one, you'll unlock a new shiny new character to try. However, you can just make a character of the same class that you just had, if you really prefer. But usually the new ones are exciting enough that, of course, you'll want to try that. And with everybody doing this, you can work your way through the many unlockables that come with this game. And it is quite an expensive game, but I think this, honestly, the ratio of entertainment and hours of enjoyment to dollar is phenomenal. Probably beats most other forms of media and entertainment for hours to dollars spent. Honestly, a tremendous feat of a board game in a very unique experience that pushes the very boundaries of what board games are. And I enjoy this game tremendously. I don't think it's without flaws, but I think its strengths and the sheer expanse of what it is and what it does is incredible and absolutely deserves to be on my list of top games and is something that I think everyone in board gaming should check out at some point. And that is number nine, Gloomhaven. Next on my list, back down after that titan and huge, incredible investment of time and energy, back down to a more bite-sized form is Unmatched. And this is designed by Rob Davio and Justin D. Jacobson, published by Mondo Games and Restoration Games. So while, yes, it is absolutely smaller and more bite-sized than the, you know, gigantic Gloomhaven, I do really think that Unmatched is purer entertainment. It is efficiently fun. The 
time between teaching and startup and the amount that there's nothing in the way of the fun and the enjoyment of this game is tremendous and absolutely worth worth applauding. So what Unmatched is, is you are just famous characters, depending on which set you get. Uh, you can be anything from sword fighters to Draculas to dinosaurs, all competing against each other. And this can be played as a 1v1, a 2v2, or a, you know, three-person free-for-all. All of which play really well. While they play really differently, the 1v1 is a very tight duel. I think this shines as a 2v2 team battle where the momentum shifts between people, targets are switched as both teams vie to try to be the first team to knock someone out because then it becomes a 2v1 match. But that struggle to make it a 2v1 is such a tight balance. And of course, this is done with each character having their own deck of cards. Each turn, they'll have the opp opportunity to either make an attack, do use a scheme action, or do a maneuver, which draws a card and lets them move around the map. Each character has their own special abilities, and each with their own unique set of abilities within their decks. These decks also function as kind of a stamina, as if you ever run out of cards and need to draw, you will just start taking damage off of a health die. And once you eliminate your enemy, you reduce their health dial down to nothing, you win the game. And that's done through a very interesting reveal mechanic. You both select an attack card, and then the defender has an opportunity to select a defense card both of which are revealed at the same time, which in and of itself is a very interesting mechanic because you don't know what's in your opponent's hand. Maybe they have a huge reversal that will actually hugely negatively affect you, or maybe they have, you know, the equivalent of defending themselves with a handful of cotton balls. You really don't know. And sometimes they have a huge hand of cards and no defense cards in there to defend themselves. So you just get free shots. The mix of the movement around this board with the mechanics of the different attacks that all these characters can do and the different play styles that each of these characters has makes this endlessly replayable. The leanness of the rules and the efficiency with which it becomes fun is excellent for new board gamers, for old board gamers, for anyone who wants to play a board game with you. This is pure pulp action fun, and it's absolutely just that easy. On top of all of that, this very lean, punchy game is draped a layer of some of the finest artwork I have ever seen. I think this is possibly the best illustrated game ever. I really think the art, every single piece of art, and this is largely due to Mondo being partnered into this, is that every single piece of art in this game is a piece of art. Not just a placeholder to give you a vague notion of what the designer was intending. Each is a unique and really impressive display of minimalistic or stylistic art. And absolutely, this is personal preference, but I think that style of art is exactly what I would shoot for and what I want to decorate my living spaces with. So really, Unmatched is lives up to its name. It is tremendously good. It is endlessly expandable with these different characters. It's very affordable. The base sets are not that expensive, cheaper than most board games, and all of the expansions are even cheaper than that. It's very easy to teach. It's very fun to play. It's very quickly over. It's easy to do a few rounds in a night. It's very entertaining. It's very approachable. Honestly, this game is aces, and I think you should try it out. It's a joy to own, a joy to play, and a joy to share with people. And that is number eight, Unmatched. And for number seven on my top 30 board games of all time, 
is a game that should come as no surprise to anyone who regularly listens to the podcast. And this game is Fox in the Forest, designed by Joshua Joshua Bergel, published by Foxtrot Games and Renegade Game Studios. What Fox in the Forest is, is a two-player trick-taking game, where players will be dealt hands of cards, I believe 13 in them, and each turn they will have a chance with one player leading and one player following to play tricks. This is done by playing a card and then playing a second card from the other player. The higher card takes it and gets that player a point. However, there will be a trump suit. Of the three suits of this game, when you start the game, you deal out a random card and that becomes the trump suit. These cards trump all sorts of suits, so a two of the trump suit is higher than the other suits. And with this, you have, of course, you're trying to win the majority of these throughout your hand. So there's the wonderful conundrum of do you play your worst cards first, and then try to end strong with your higher cards, or vice versa. And meanwhile, there are a few cards in each of the suits that have special abilities. Fives let you gain a card and basically swap out one of the cards with the deck. Ones let you lead the next trick even though you've lost this one. Sevens will actually get you a victory point if you can win that suit. Nines act as a sort of their own trump suit, depending on if it's the only one in the trick. And threes let you change the trump suit, which is a huge game changer in that the trump suit, you, then you can try, do you, are you going to play all your trump cards first, try to change it, and then play all those to give yourself a huge advantage? But the opposite player might also have a fox, and they might just change it immediately, kind of hooping you and really throwing off your strategy. And the even foxier, trickety trick <laughs> final twist of excellent game design that really, really juices this game is that the amount of tricks you get is not the amount of points you get. If you reach certain thresholds, you actually get more or less points, which, you know, sounds self-explanatory. However, if you get over the vast majority, so I think it's, yeah, if you get over nine in the tricks, if you get the vast majority, almost all of them, you actually get zero points. And the person who lost most of those tricks actually gets six points, which is the highest amount that you can get. What this does is completely overturn the normal flow of what you would think the rest of this game would go like. You have to be aware of how hard you're winning. Not just that you're winning, you want to keep ahead in the amount of tricks that you get, but it gives the wonderful catch-up mechanic if you are just getting owned, if you're losing most of them, you can just try to lose intentionally. If you throw the rest of the tricks and make sure they win all of them, you get the highest amount of points that you can get. It's a very risky maneuver, but lets a wonderful catch-up mechanic if you are just really getting beat so far, you can reverse it on them. And it makes it so that if you are in the lead, you actually have to make sure that there are ones that you can lose intentionally so that you don't win too hard and therefore get no points for it. It is a wonderful mechanic in a, such an unknowable game where you both have to just play cards from these unknown hands while also both of you have two-thirds of the deck. There's the mysterious amount of what cards are in the deck that hasn't, hasn't been dealt out. Maybe all of the, the threes fox cards that let you change the trump suit are all in there and the trump suit is never going to change in the game. Maybe all of the high cards are in there and you assume that your seven is, you know, it seems to be mediocre, might actually be the highest card in all of the game. This wonderful unknowable quality while also having to read your partner and try to really stay up on the situation gives this game a whip crack 
smart electric edge to it. And for my money, I think this is this is the best two-player card game out there. This has filled many hours of my life with fun and a excellent competitive while also being fun game. Since it's not calculatable, you can't really feel bad about losing in this game. But you you absolutely feel like you've certainly outfoxed your opponent whenever you win. It is very easy to teach. It only takes maybe one round before anybody kind of really, you know, grocks the system. And then once you have that, the competing is such a rewarding and rich experience that I find myself gravitating to it over and over and over again. This is absolutely one of my most played games ever. Since games are so short, you can absolutely... It really throws off my board game stats because you can just get so many games in there and every single one of them is great. This is a game that I think everyone should own. I think it makes an excellent stocking stuffer. I think it's the greatest gift. It's something that I've tried to show everybody I played board games with and really, really a tremendous game. And that is Fox in the Forest, number seven. And this next game, number six, actually, with all that praise for Fox in the Forest, this next game, number six, gave Fox in the Forest a run for its money. This game is Kulami, designed by Andreas Kunikath and published by Foxmind. What Kulami is, is a very simple marble laying game, which I think is a very, you know, interesting title. I guess the only other comparison is kind of Chinese checkers. How you start the game is with an assortment of tiles, all with these sort of little divots in them. You have to lay them out in a certain order. Actually, no, you can lay them out in any order while just making sure that it doesn't get too wide. There's just one rule that you have to kind of keep everything within 10 divots in a row. And once you've done so, you take turns with your opponent placing marbles onto these tiles. And the only rules I can teach you this game right now, because it's just that simple, is that after the first marble is out, you have to place a marble, but you can't place it on the same tile as your opponent, you can't place it on the last tile that you've just placed a marble, and you have to place it either in a row vertically or horizontally with where your opponent just placed it. And it even well-designedly gives you these little meeple covers that go over your marbles once you've placed them so that you know where you've last put down a marble. And that's it. That's the game. It is deceptively simple because the first half of the game, you feel like you're not really playing a game. You're just putting marbles out, making sure you follow that rule. But as the board fills up with these marbles, you reach how to win. And that is by having the most points. You score points for each tile that you have the majority of your color of marbles on. So some of them are six divots, some of them have two, some have four, and some have three. And if you have the majority, so, you know, three out of four, or even one out of four, if you're the only one to have a marble on that tile... If you get that, then you get as many points as there are divots on that tile. So 6 for 6, 4 for 4, etc. And at the end of the game, if you have more points, then you win. That's it. That's all. But this becomes increasingly difficult because you are competing with your opponent. They want to have more, more marbles on the different tiles than you do. And as you go, you will have the opportunity to, maybe you're going to choose to try to ignore tiles and try to have the majority even with just one marble on this tile. Or maybe you're just going to intentionally cancel your opponents and try to put the even amount of marbles on tiles just to, you know, take away points from them instead of scoring yourself points. This game is very quick. It's very easy to teach. That is the rules. I've literally taught you all the rules in the game. And once you play it, it becomes a 
a wonderfully simple and elegant puzzle and duel between your opponent. You are trying to control most of the stuff while denying control to your opponent, while, all while operating within the confines of how you the rules for placing marbles. And within that, once you've kind of grokked that and played your f- first few games, you can try to use that to your advantage. You can put your marble in places which will force your opponent to put marble in a place that you want and try to chain those moves together. With try to being the keyword there, because of course they're trying to do the same thing. It is very quick, it's very well designed, it's very elegant and even visually appealing with the black and red marbles on these nice wooden pieces. Like this is a game that you could leave out as a showpiece just somewhere in your house, much like chess or checkers or the other abstract games. I think this is some of the best and purest game design out there. This one is so quick to pick up. It's something that I literally played once and then returned to that board game cafe to buy it the next time. The next time I was in there, I'm like, I'm buying this immediately. It was literally like the next day. It is tremendously good, tremendously simple, super easy to teach. And once you start playing, it's a wonderfully cerebral and tense competition between you and opponent. This is an excellent game, and one that I have enjoyed discovering this year tremendously, and one that's just going to be in my collection probably for the rest of my life. It's really a tremendously good game, and that is Kulami. And now number five on my top 30 games is really a veteran of the board gaming industry, really one that I think most people know, and for a very good reason, I think it is absolutely tremendous, and that is Dominion, designed by Donald X. Vaccarino and published by Rio Grande Games. So Dominion, for those of you who don't know already, is the granddaddy of all deck builder games. It certainly probably wasn't the very first to do the deck building mechanic within games, but it's absolutely the one that made the mechanic popular. And while Clank is on my top 10 using the deck building mechanic, I think The deck building mechanic was really perfected here, and the leanness and purity of the design of this game really stands out. So what Dominion is, the theme is a light dusting on top of it. You are a ruler trying to expand your dominion, or your kingdom, through these various lands. How this will work is you'll have a starting deck filled with the barest minimum of coins and point cards. Basically, you're a very small kingdom with money. And how it works is every turn you'll have the opportunity to play action cards out of your hand. You'll draw five cards off your deck, have the opportunity to play action cards, and then with those actions you can then spend money cards from your hand to acquire new cards, and those will go into your discard pile. You'll keep drawing from your deck until there's none left, and then shuffle your discard and that becomes your new deck. And that is largely it. You do this until all of the very highest scoring land cards are taken or three of the available stacks of cards are emptied. Once that's happened, you just go through your decks and reveal all your point-scoring cards, and whoever has the most wins. And that is the very lean design of this game. What is for sale will be, of course, the point-scoring cards. You'll have more money cards, so using money to buy bigger money, to buy bigger stuff later. Or you'll have the action cards all of which have various effects. There'll be close to 10 in each game. You'll have various options in each game, and they all have abilities to benefit you in some way, with some of them comboing off each other and letting you build up 
an engine. So as you are deck building, this is very much a engine building game. And due to the leanness and just how there's no guardrails on this, so you can absolutely build a bad engine. My first few games, I absolutely just bought point scoring cards. But what you realize is that if you get a glut of those at the beginning of the game, it just bogs up your engine and each turn you'll just draw point scoring cards, which are great for the end of the game, but they don't let you do anything on your turn. So you quickly have to learn to balance getting more money to get more cards while also getting actions that lets you better utilize that money while also getting the point scoring cards that actually let you win the game. And this game, I think, is the epitome of like clean design. It has the perfect sort of arc to its gameplay. Of course, your first few turns, you will not be able to do much, but like the first few pebbles that start an avalanche, you will slowly just gain momentum and knock more things off and slowly build up and build up until the last few rounds of the game, you can do some incredible things and buy the hugely expensive cards. And this sort of exponential growth for me is super, super satisfying. It leads to a very, very excellent and enjoyable play experience as you feel get to feel and experience your deck grow in ability and momentum and let you do more on each turn. The sense of growth that is given by this arc is tremendous and intensely satisfying. This game is, it is not entirely uninteractive as there are the action cards, some of them negatively influence your opponents and you can absolutely try to build a deck that is more offensive in that uh, sense, or you can try to be more defensive and just build cards that kind of navigate those effects. The sense of choice and the sense of growth within this game with no extra, there's not an ounce of fat on this design. It's absolutely just the purest, simplest. This is what the experience is with no frills and no extra guff at all. And the sense of Choosing how you want to play and how you want to build is very satisfying, as well as the sense of growth is just tremendous. And really, I think this is, as as much as I've said there's uh, before on this list that there are games that everyone should own, I think this is like remedial board gaming. This is absolutely one of the founding building block type board games in the board gaming hobby. And I think everyone should basically play this one before they play other deck builders. Or at least just play this at some point. This is a tremendous game, even though many other games have tried to use its mechanic mechanics, it has just done so, so well that it stands as a titan within board gaming and as number five on my list of best board games. And that is Dominion. Number four on this list is almost the diametric opposite. If Dominion is sort of the building blocks and logical and... I guess nutritional, then Quacks of Quedlinburg is the crazy handfuls of candy that a a kid pulls out of the candy store when given far too much money to spend. This is Quacks of Quedlinburg, designed by Wolfgang Varsh and published by North Star Games. What Quacks of Quedlinburg is, is you descend upon the medieval town of Quedlinburg as part of their annual potion brewing contest. And the players are the local shamans, soothsayers, and sort of snake oil salesmen that are quacks, really. Um, they are the potion makers for this contest. How this works is you will all have a bag. In it will go a few starting ingredients, which are these little sort of chips, and each turn you will draw chips from your bag and place them on their potion 
playboard in sort of a ascending outward spiral. That really would look like a ladder if it was, you know, unwound. And the further that you can get on the spiral, you score more points. And then at the end of each round, you'll have the opportunity to kind of use these points to get more ingredients and add those into their bag. So it's definitely a bag builder, kind of similar. However, the big catch here is that in your bag are ingredients that will cause your potion to explode. If you ever get over seven, which is the limit for these cherry bomb tokens, which are the exploding component, if you ever get more than that, your potion explodes and you will be hindered at the end of each round. Normally you would score points and be able to get ingredients, but you will have to choose to do one of those. So what this turns into is a deck builder where you can draw as many cards as you want. However, those cards could be bad, so it's constantly a struggle of pushing your luck. Maybe a couple more, maybe a couple more, maybe this one's safe. I mean, and you start, you're not allowed to look in your bag throughout the entire game, but you can feel the chips and you can count how many are left and kind of do the math to figure out how many of the exploding tokens are left and what, like, how good your odds are. However, it's random and human brains are bad at random. We think that 75 means 100% we're good. But if you have the odds of, you know, 75% of the chips in there are not going to cause your potion to explode, sometimes it just will. And watching people struggle with this push-your-luck element to it and doing so yourself is intensely satisfying. It is such a fun dilemma of watching people start to sweat as they want to keep going and keep going and keep getting more points and get more points to get more ingredients to get more points and just build this intense potion-brewing bag and assortment of ingredients You'll watch them slowly start to slip into that gambling mindset of, oh, maybe just a couple more, maybe just a couple more, okay, one more, one more should be fine, okay, one more, I want to have the most here, because of course you're incentivized to get the farthest on your spiral each turn. You just want to keep going and keep beating your opponents, however, this path is just lined with failure, and you will be doomed to some sort of explosion at some point, unless you play it really safe. However, how you win the game is not by playing it safe. Because as you get more points over these rounds, you will get more stuff and be able to get more points for the end of the game. And that is Quacks of Quedlinburg. It is very simple, and I've heard people criticizing it for the lack of choices in the game. However, I absolutely refute that because the, the decisions that you do have are incredibly satisfying. And incredibly... Oh, portentous and definitely everyone is a dilemma. Every single ingredient that you pull, you are going to think about whether it's going to explode or not, and you're going to worry about it. And that bubbling tension within this potion brewing game is aces. It is excellent. And the design sort of mechanics within it, the little catch-up mechanic with the rat tails, giving the players that are kind of in, in last more basically steps up this ladder to try to catch them up and and keep things from getting to basically to negate the randomness so that you are still in the race even if you have a couple bad turns are excellent and i think masterful strokes of game design to really keep this very random push your luck game white hot and exciting throughout and i have played this game many many times i've shown it to many people and i love the tension that it creates and just the fun not know what's going to happen next atmosphere around it. It's a tremendous game and a tremendous experience, and I think absolutely one of the best games of the last few years. And that is Quacks of Quedlinburg. And now for number three on the list. Once again, this is another game by Mr. Varsh. 
Um, this is Taverns of Tiefenthal, designed by Wolfgang Varsh and published by North Star Games. Where Quacks of Quedlinburg is exciting and poppy and unknown, Taverns of Tiefenthal is steady and comfy and warm, which is a very strange sort of sensation to get from, you know, bits of cardboard. However, what you are doing in Taverns of Tiefenthal is you are competing to be have the best tavern within the town of Tiefenthal. How you will do this is by attracting wealthier and more influential patrons to your bar by adding to your bar's personal deck. Each turn you will draw from the deck, which fills the tables. You will then have a dr dice drafting mechanic where you roll dice and get to choose one and pass the rest around the table while also and then choosing another and so on and so forth until you have your dice. You'll then use these dice to trigger different abilities within your tavern, generating either beer or coins. Coins let you add improvements to your bar. You can hire more waitstaff, more servers, more dishwashers, more beer itself, more brewers, or more tables. While the actual beer is used to recruit more patrons and get more points for winning the game. And these patrons also give you more opportunities in the future to earn more points. They kind of diversify what you can do with the dice. Because at the beginning of the game, ones and sixes are kind of the best things. Everything in the middle is pretty useless at the beginning until you get more of these patrons, which let you use the different faces of these dice for things and for higher scoring points. As well as, so what you do after you've used your beer and your coins to get all these improvements as you put them on top of your deck, and then you'll start again next round. So you know for sure that each of these improvements are going into your deck, and there's not a whole lot versus Dominion, where you'll go through your deck many, many times. In Taverns, you really maybe go through your deck maybe a few times. You end up not drawing that many cards each turn because you only have three tables until you improve it. So you'll only, you might only see three cards, depending. But once you draw these improvements, they actually increase your limit and you can keep drawing cards. It's only once these tables have filled with patrons that you actually have to stop. So you have to balance building your bar, building the actual points cards while diversifying what you can do with these dice while also diversifying having enough in your deck to kind of start improving your turns and letting you do more on each turn and sort of chaining all of that together. This is a interesting and complex engine builder where parts, different parts of the engine fire at different times and trying to make them all work together and work consistently is difficult and the main puzzle of the game. And I understand that this game is less well-reviewed than Quacks of Quedlinburg. I understand it doesn't have the highest highs that Quacks of Quedlinburg has, where you get really lucky and manage to draw the final thing. What it instead has is more consistently satisfying. Drawing good stuff feels really good in this game, and it just is a really consistently enjoyable experience. You still get that sense of kind of building and growth as you improve your bar and improve what you can do, and use the coins to buy upgrades, which, in another stroke of wonderfully well-designed uh, tactility and actual mechanics of the physical game, is your bar is a little cardboard player mat in front of you, but sections of it are little puzzle pieces that, if you pay enough coins, you can flip over to give a permanent upgrade. It doesn't go in your deck, you'll just get that upgrade every turn, so they're more lasting. As well as each upgrade gives you a noble, which goes into your deck, which are the big point scorers. So of course, upgrading your bar is one of the best ways to win the game. And kind of the end game, you will definitely be doing it a lot. But just flipping over those tokens and improving your bar 
is really, really satisfying in a tactile way, as well as the whole building into the game mechanics way. I think this game is incredibly well designed, and how all of these systems fit together and feel, I think this game is an exemplar of game feel, and just leads to a really rewarding experience every time. So that's why I would actually put it above Quacks of Quedlinburg, and as my third best game of all time. That is Taverns of Tiefenthal. And now for number two on my top 30 list of games, and it was a tight one. It was very close. These top two were off by one point each, and it was absolutely a very tough decision finally determining which one would come out on top. But this number two is War Chest, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, and published by Alderac Entertainment Group. What War Chest is, it's a very much an abstract game. The finest amount of light dusting of theme upon it is this War Chest, the one even the game that you are holding, is a gift from a general to the future ruler of a country in a way to teach them how to, you know, manage armies and deploy troops and learn strategy. But what the actual game is, is you are trying to control a hex, hex map in front of you. On this hex map are control points. If you move your tokens onto them and claim them, if you can claim up to six in a two-player game or up to eight in a four-player game, then you win the game. It's just claiming these territories. How you'll do this is on your turn, you will draw three chips or three tokens from your bag. And these are poker chip sized tokens. They by themselves are really, really satisfying to use in another wonderful stroke of tactility. Apparently it's a thing that really matters to me is the tactility of a game and how it feels. They are wonderfully weighted. They're wonderful to use and manipulate as part of this game and just add an extra level of just pleasing aesthetic and tactility to this game. If this game was done the same but with cards, it would not be as... It would just lose that pleasing tactility to it, as well as not work so well as they work great as tokens and sort of cards. But what you'll do on your turn is draw three of these, and then you have three types of actions you can do. You can either put out a chip, which is to deploy a unit, which you can play onto these control points that you already have, and you start the game with a couple. You can also put a chip onto another chip to reinforce it and kind of give it two health. You can also play them face down to either recruit another chip, which you take out of the bank and put into your discard pile to be added into your bag when you run out later. You can also place a face-down chip to pass, which is an interesting tactical thing. If you're at a standoff and you want them to make the first move, you can take a pass. Or you can play a face-down chip to claim the initiative and make sure that your team or you will be able to go first next turn. And then the last one is face-up actions. So if you have a token in your hand that matches a token on the board, you can use it to influence that one. You can play it to make them move, which is just move to adjacent space, make them attack, which is just attack in adjacent space. And if there's a token beside them on the enemy team, if they get attacked, you just remove one of the chips. So if they're bolstered, they lose one and are still there. But if they're not, then they just die. And those chips are removed from the game. Or you can use them to, if they're already on one of these control points, you can play a chip face up to make them claim it. Or the last one, which is kind of the unique thing, is you can make them do their tactic. So each of these chips is one of... 16 individual classes that are randomly distributed, or you can do a card drafting variant, to start the game. So you might have archers and knights and cavalry, while they might have crossbowmen, heavy cavalry, and pikemen. And all of these different types of units have a different special tactic they, they can do. 
Cavalry can move really quickly. Knights can only be attacked by bolstered units. Archers can attack from long range, but can't attack from up close. So you play the game using these combinations of actions, claiming spaces and killing opponents, and then once you have run out of chips to draw on your bag, you draw from, you, you know, throw all your discard chips, all the chips from your discard pile back into your bag and draw again. So with the recruiting, you actually can add into your bag and build it much like a deck builder. However, the big balance here is that the chips that are used for controlling your units are your units, are also your unit's health. So if you throw your knight into battles and he starts to take hits and lose chips and you have to deploy again and he gets hit again, you start to lose tactical control of that unit. You have less chips in your bag. You have less chips in your pool. You're not going to be able to control that guy as much because they've lost those tokens out of your pool, which this system gives the game a wonderful, wonderful arc. Like this game could absolutely be a nightmare for two very analytical players without this system. As it is, it gives a, like a, you know, it's got a carbon half-life on this game. You will run out of options once you start taking these hits, and it gives a ticking time bomb to achieve this objective. You can absolutely win games by just, a, you know, by attrition, by just removing your opponent's chips until they can't do enough to stop you from claiming these territories. However, you can also just burst forth and try to claim them quickly before your opponent can mount a defense. If they're trying to recruit too heavily and just increase their pool without managing the board state, you can win that way as well. All of these systems come into a wonderful and incredibly well-balanced, meaty gameplay experience for this. This was very, very close to being my favorite board game ever. The tactility of playing it, the balance of all these systems, the replayability and asymmetricality built into randomly distributing what type of units you get each turn is incredible and a absolutely astounding piece of game design this is a tremendous product and i think if you care about board games at all i think this is something that will bring happiness to your life it is a piece of cardboard and plastic that will make you feel good as well as this game also plays really well it plays well with two versus two as well. I think uh, in the dual one versus one is where it really shines. However, uh, the 2v2 team variant is really interesting as well because you get a certain amount. Instead of the four units that you get to control before, each player gets three, but you're on teams. And with the alternating back and forth between the teams, like initiative order, as well as the kind of cooperation between you and your partner and the trying to like chain your stuff together, is a really, really interesting and satisfying. It's a little harder to parse everything because you can't keep everything in your head with the, you know, now you have to keep track of three other people that are doing random things, and it makes it a little harder to anticipate what's going on. But it still is a really, really enjoyable experience and definitely awesome. This game is tremendous, and it is my favorite game that I've played in the last year and a absolute stellar addition to my board game collection and one that I highly recommend. And that is War Chest. And lastly, for my number one ranked board game is, coming as no surprise to anyone who listens to the podcast regularly, it is Champions of Midgard. Designed by Ole Steiness and published by Gray Fox Games. And I really thought maybe I this wasn't my favorite game anymore. Maybe this wasn't the one that I was going to rank the highest. Maybe with my new consideration and with my new factoring in for a kind of 
critical reception and newfound appreciation of intelligence of systems and design, I didn't think that this one would still come out on top. And even so, I've definitely, I still played this game recently to reaffirm everything that I think about it. And it is absolutely my favorite game and my ranked best board game. It's not just my favorite. I think it's the best board game that I have played. So what you are doing in Champions of Midgard is the old Jarl is dead. And now your clan has the opportunity by gaining the most glory to become the new Jarl and the new ruler of Midgard. So within your Viking clan, you will have to gain glory by defeating vile monsters, whether they're Draugr or trolls or mighty monsters from across the seas. How you'll do this is in the first part of the game is or the first part of every turn, is you'll place your workers, your serfs, to go and acquire resources, acquire new warriors, which are their own little custom dice, as well as track down these monsters and kind of reserve that spot so that you can fight that monster later in the turn. Players will compete and take turns taking up these spots with their little workers until everyone is out, and then you have the opportunity to allocate your Viking dice. These Viking warrior dice you will have to allocate out to all the monsters that you have attacked. So if you've sent serfs to three different monsters, then you're going to be sorely divided in your efforts. And you have to determine who to send where and what you think are going to survive. How combat works, once you've allocated all your warriors, is combat will begin. And how it works is each monster has an attack value and a defense value. The attack value is how many dice they're going to kill every turn of combat. And their defense value is basically how many hits they can take before they die. So each turn you'll roll, you'll roll your Viking warrior dice and how many hits show up on top, which are the little weapons, is how many hits they do to the monster. L hopefully you've calculated well and rolled well and you can kill that monster in one turn before they kill too many of your warriors. Some of these warriors will have shields on them, which will let them shield themselves from the monster's attack and kind of cancel out their attacks. So if you're really lucky, it's even possible to kill monsters without taking any, any casualties yourself. However, and much more likely, is that you're going to have to take a couple whacks at this. If you've done that and neither side is gone, they haven't killed all of your Viking warriors and you haven't killed the monster, you'll roll again and keep doing rounds of this until either the your Viking warriors come back with their shields or on them. Earning glory and gold for your clan. Or getting getting defeated and leaving that monster wounded and ready for the scooping up and defeating by one of your opponents next turn. So there are many more mechanics in this. There are blame. If you don't kill the trolls, they give blame to everyone. But if you're the one to kill a troll, you get to shuffle your blame onto other people, letting the trolls actually be a really hot commodity, not because they give you anything, but because you can just avoid losing points through them. As well as... With the various economic stuff, you can get wood and gold, which can get you better upgrades and can get you more ships, but the food and wood and gold and economics are largely to send your Vikings across the seas, where they'll have to board boats and, you know, consume resources to travel across and fight even bigger, even more rewarding monsters. The Draugr that are right next to town are great, but they don't give you as many points as the huge sea dragons and giants that are across the sea and are really kind of the way to win this game. So what this game does is, for me, it's the perfect union of a lot of concepts within board gaming. You have the economic management and worker placement that is sending your serfs and making sure that you have enough resources to try to do what you want to do, as well as the dice rolling and 
combat of your Viking warriors against these monsters. Every single fight is a gamble. You have to determine, yeah, you want to kill the monster, but you also want to kill the monster with the least amount of warriors as you can, with the least casualties. So sometimes you'll even get one warrior dice against a huge monster, just hoping that you can, by luck, just kill them with just the least amount of people possible. It's a very interesting crush of economic resource management with luck and kind of probability management and push your luck elements all crushed together in a competitive game that is, for me, the pinnacle of board gaming in its approachability, in its design, in the satisfyingness of its systems. This is a game that I can use to introduce people to board games and get them to love it immediately, as well as bring to people who love board games already and really have a great time with the systems. I really think it sits in a perfect sweet spot of balance between all of these different different systems and appeals and comes out really tremendously, even though it is such a broad appeal. This is still my highest ranked board game, and one that I think really exemplifies what board gaming can be, what it can offer, and how good of a time that you can have with board games. And with that, my top 30 of 2020 is complete. Thank you so much to listening if you've got this far. I really appreciate it. I hope you have really enjoyed listening to all of these board games as I talk about just the board games that really get me fired up and really reveal my love of this hobby and sharing these experiences with people. And I hope you've got some ideas for ones to try in the future and hopefully my enthusiasm can shine through and hopefully get you more stoked and more excited to play board games with people because that's what I love about this hobby and why I'm doing this podcast to share that enthusiasm and enjoyment with you guys. Thank you so much for listening throughout the year. This has been 2020 has been a very tumultuous year and an interesting year to be starting this project, but I appreciate every single one of you who have listened to this and you'll catch me next time. The next episode will be a recap of the year as well as some things and plans I have for the future, so look forward to that next week. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, share it with somebody, or even just share your love of board games with them. If this podcast can foster a love of board games and get more people having good times together, then it has been a success. But if you think has been effective and gotten you excited for playing board games and about them, if you could please rate it five stars, that would be hugely appreciated. I know Apple Podcasts has a rating system. I know other platforms do as well. If you could rate it well, that would hugely help it and help it reach more people and hopefully help more people enjoy board games. If you want to hear more about my love of board games and if you want to hear more from us about how great board games are or just other news, follow me on Twitter. I'm Meeple Gamestack because I couldn't fit the inna in there as well as I'm on Instagram at Meeple in the Game Stack, and you can see some previews and photos of the games that I'm playing right now a little bit before they come out on the podcast. And as always, a big thank you to Grumpy Snorlax for the use of his song Cerulean as the intro and outro music. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. In the future, I will have other ways of supporting it, still brainstorming them, so look forward to that, as well as in the future, I'm going to start a community around this podcast. I want to hear from you guys. I want to be able to discuss things and ask you guys questions and just bounce ideas and get more excited about this hobby that we both love. So if you've listened this far, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.